Hello, and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people, whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. I'm Josh Nixon, content producer for Label Sessions. In this episode, Maxine Mackey of Label Sessions talks to Dave Cairns. Dave is a leader in the realm of flexible office spaces at CBRE, helping businesses adapt to the evolving landscape of work. Dave proudly advocates for the transformative power of remote work and the emerging trends shaping the future of the workplace. Maxine talks to him to find out more. Well, Dave, thank you so much for kind of joining me today. Um, could you introduce yourself to the Label Sessions audience, please? Yes, um, I've lately been describing myself as a, a, a content creator on the future of work and living who doubles or, or moonlights as a commercial real estate agent. Um, I, my, my, I guess I have two selves. I have the self that's passionate about the future of work and living um, that uh, I, I leverage that opportunity to, to be creative and to make content, to write and to make videos and to moderate discussions and, and these kinds of things. Um, most of that is not paid work. Um, and then the paid work that I do is as a commercial real estate, um, real estate agent, uh, I have a, a keen focus on the flex office sector, um, less focused on helping uh, enterprise companies migrate to flexible spaces. And I'm more focused on helping the flexible purveyors of that space. You know, the, the notable names that people might recognize would be WeWork. I'm not working with WeWork, but I'm working with competitors in that sector, helping them add more locations. And so I'm, I'm feeling it's important work um, pre-pandemic. The, um, the real estate industry, the big brokerage firms were predicting that as much as 30% of office inventory would, would convert from fixed long-term lease space to flexible on-demand space by 2030. Uh, that was a pandemic prediction, which of course has been accelerated by the pandemic and the, and the shift towards remote distributed work. Um, so yeah, working with the purveyors of that flexible space and helping them grow uh, helps solve the mismatch of supply and demand in the commercial real estate industry. So that's that's uh, the area that I, I mostly monetize an income from at the moment. I'm quite curious because you've got such a kind of a strong following on Murray from the content that you're creating when you're talking about the future of work and these kind of a flexible working spaces. Can you, um, in the conversations that you have around, I guess, designing for flexible working providers, what kind of requirements and conversations are you having with them to talk about what workplaces need to be in the future? Yeah, well, they're interesting because they're the ones that, again, are, are trying to purvey, purvey the space. So clearly they they care what the enterprise um, needs are. Um, and and the interesting thing about, about the flex office industry is that it's more of a B2B to C um, play, which really actually makes them a lot more focused on what customers need because uh, notably the the lease durations that most companies are going to sign on with with a flexible office space provider are going to you know range from literally a membership uh, to probably no more than a three-year commitment versus the traditional sector which is more commonly three to ten years or or five to ten year commitments so the, the typical office landlord can sort of set it and forget it. They, they compete quite vigorously for vacant space and they'll spend a lot of time, energy and money to try to obtain a tenant. 
Uh, but once they have that tenant, they don't really have to worry too much about doing much to service them versus the flex sector, which has to focus a lot more on, on actually not only servicing a company, but making sure that uh, end users of that space are getting what they need, feel taken care of, and feel feel part of a community. Um, so that's what they're obviously out there trying to achieve, the flex office operators. But what I'm more helping them with is um, that getting access to the kind of data that will tell them whether a given market, sub-market, or building will actually perform well as a flexible office space location. Um, and, and the kind of data that, that typically is needed is um, stuff like, what are the occupancy levels of comparable flex space purveyors or operators in that given area? You know, are they 90% full or are they 50% vacant? That actually dictate, um, you know, the, the goal obviously would be a lot of latent demand in a given area, like people that want to use flex space, but there's not enough of it available. That's, but that's a perfect scenario, right? Where there's vacancy within the traditional sector that, you know, which is very common in most cities right now because uh, the pandemic has caused office vacancies to rise quite a lot because of a migrate to remote work. So if we're in an area where there's a lot of available vacant office space, but not a lot of flexible office space and a lot of demand for flexible office space, those are the perfect storm. And, you know, we help sort of get that data in their hands and help them interpret and understand that data so that we can then go and try and make a match with an office landlord and give them the comfort that they need to be able to you know, get into bed, so to speak, uh, with a co-working operator, spend a ton of capital to build out a space you know, to that kind of schematic or design, and that maybe even be in a revenue sharing partnership with that flexible space operator you know, this, these are not traditional deals. These are not 10 to 15 year leases, you know, from a financial institution that's just going to pay rent whether they use the space or not. These are partnerships that involve quite a lot of upfront capital to get going. So I'm helping them in that department and they're probably more focused on on how they're designing those spaces to match the needs of, of end users. I guess if you kind of uh, look back to when you started your career and we kind of dipped your toe in, in commercial real estate, are you surprised at the move to partnerships or is it something that you always like had a hunch was going to just snowball? I started to realize that it was it was bound to have to happen um, when WeWork started to become such a popular company, um, na- namely because um, if there is upside to be had, which, you know, just like anything that you offer as a service, there's there's usually a subscription model that can be had there which is great recurring revenue that, that, that creates exponential value in a, in a company. Um, there, there's that element of flexible space that's very different than, than traditional office leasing. Um, and then there's just simply being able to capture more than a market rent. So like, you know, for example, if a market rent is $50 per square foot, in theory, uh, a good co-working or flexible space provider could actually achieve maybe three times that amount of, of revenue. So I did it. I did think that it would, you know, eventually landlords would say, well, you know, why would I ever invest all this money to design and build out a space that I spend most of the money on if I'm not going to be actually benefiting in the upside that could be earned from that? And so the partnership model really does benefit both sides the best because, you know, the, the co-working operator, if they take a lease, 
they get all of that upside in a good market. But then in a down market, they might actually walk away and hand the keys back on that lease to a landlord. And so the landlord in, in a lease actually stands to be the most at risk because they don't get any of the upside in the good times and they could get the keys handed back to them in the bad times. And so clearly a partnership and sharing and revenue makes a lot more sense. Um, the resistance and the tension was really just that pre-pandemic vacancy levels in big cities like say Toronto or New York City were very, very low. And there was really no impetus from landlords to take on this different and novel partnership arrangement. But now that vacancy levels are so high and it's not like a typical recessionary environment where it's purely driven by economic forces, this is actually being driven by a social movement and the shift towards a different way of working. There, these landlords are now being put almost on their back heels and don't really have much of a choice but to consider different partnership models. Now, the only thing that's really standing in the way is that the valuation methodology um, and the way that buildings get financed are all predicated on long-term commitments. And unless that valuation methodology actually evolves, even landlords that want to do things differently are going to struggle. I thought it was really interesting what you were saying around the within the kind of a purveyors of kind of a flexible working space of really a B2B2C organization. And they really have to be far more customer centric than their traditional competitors. Because A, there's choice. And I think what I took from that is if the leases and, op and options are a lot shorter, people can walk out the door really, really kind of quickly. I'd love to hear some of your reflections on ways people can I was going to say like win in that space, but it's really around other trends that you're seeing that's really important to kind of a people in the flexible office spaces they use. First and foremost, um, you know, a, a knowledge worker, if given the opportunity to be autonomous, may actually want to move more freely through their working day than they typically have the opportunity to do. And that, that could be within a city that they live and work in, or it could be on a more regional or global scale if, if people are traveling more for work, either maybe, you know, either because um, they've got the agency to actually just work where they want to, or they have client-related work that requires them to travel, either or. Um, I, I think creating a network effect is a really, really important element of offering space as a service to the end user. Um, and we've seen a huge push in the last sort of like six to 12 months from from WeWork very publicly. I mean, you know, you can take their stock price and, and all the things that are going on with them and that's a whole rabbit hole. Um, but what they've really been pushing a lot lately are memberships. Um, they don't not necessarily purchasing a singular office within one of their spaces, but a membership to be able to access any WeWork space that you want at any time. So I think that uh, the 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 persona, the, the, the different personas of a, of a knowledge worker are very much in flux. And I think that they're moving more in a direction of embodying like a corporate freelancer. So a person that works for a company that wants a salary, that wants to be part of a team and part of a shared you know direction but that wants to behave more autonomously, wants to behave more like a gig worker or a digital nomad or you know things like that. So I think that network's really important. And then it's really going to come down to, I think, like feeling taken care of. Um, you know, if you're going to leave your house and go work somewhere else, 
you know, you're, you're going to want to identify with the people that, you know, you're among, just like we do in other areas of our life, right? Like the, the places that we willingly choose to go to in our own life are, are usually for a specific product, service, or experience. And the experience is usually tied to a community connection of some kind. And so what the brand, what the, what the actual co-working space brand stands for and who it's trying to attract are going to be increasingly more important as what I think is really also is, is ultimately happening is the office is kind of unbundling itself. It used to be this singular place that, that people were forced to go to on a fixed schedule. And it's now just unbundling and expanding itself. An example I, I like to actually give is, um, I used to be a professional online poker player and, um, the online poker industry actually exponentially grew the live poker industry. So it's not like it actually stole market share away from the live poker world. It actually added way more stops. Uh, and it, it like, you know, new brands got created like the European poker tour, or the, you know, the world series of poker expanded massively other like large like poker brands were created and the size of that live poker economy i mean i don't know what it grew by but just exponential so i think the same is really happening here as the office unbundles itself i think that what will eventually happen is that employers will realize that they can't just hit their office location against somebody's home they have to actually provide and empower employees with a wide variety of spaces to choose from those employees to maybe align with brands that, that, that connect with them on a personal level. And, and even also ideally the company goes, you know what, this, this, this flexible space brand aligns with us and it's, it stands for what we stand for. And so we stand with them and so too do our employees. Um, I really think that that's a big part of the shift that's happening, right? It, there's something interesting in this shift, Dave, where actually the future of cities and public spaces can be more important to the future work if it's true if we're talking about communities and if there's not like a traditional office that everybody is moving to and you have choice and autonomy and moving towards the space that fits your need at a particular time i'd love to tap into your reflections on the importance of i guess the future of cities where flexible work sits into that and the design of public spaces i think it was drawer Pollock that said this he's a guy i follow um remote work isn't going to kill cities it's really just going to reinvent them um it's it's going to change the nature of our relationship to the city. So, you know, if you just look at how cities have evolved, they've evolved around, you know, post-industrial age. We, we basically took factory work and applied that concept to office-based work. And that need for um, synchronous and uh, proximity was, was actually very much real and needed at the time because there was a there was a clear interplay between the factory and the office in a lot of instances, and we didn't actually have the kind of technology that could allow for us to be untethered from our desks. But that shift happened a long time ago. We just didn't have a cataclysmic event to get us to see that we could do things entirely differently. And you know, all you have to do is look at how fast some of the largest financial institutions in the world, which are old giant companies that, you know, feel more like a cruise ship than a speedboat. Like those companies were able to become distributed and, you know, rely 
more on the cloud than the physicality of their infrastructure in a matter of weeks. You know, so when we go back to your question around the changing nature of cities, what I think that happens in cities is that it becomes less about conventional work and more about life, entertainment, and community. And basically work, if I were to think of it like, you know, it would be like pouring a bunch of rocks into uh, a glass. And that's the foundation of the city. Like those are those are the public spaces. Those are the, the shared services. Those are the restaurants, the entertainment, the residential. And the work is like the sand or the water that you could pour around those rocks. So rather than, whereas today, what I would say is it, it probably makes more, it more of an analogous sense to say that the rocks are actually the office buildings and we're trying to pour the rest of it around the work. So I think it, it flips the script over time. And I guess the hope is that people will be happier in these environments with more autonomy. I mean, autonomy is the number one thing that people value beyond meeting their basic needs, you know, through financial compensation. I... I hope you don't mind me asking. I think you're dipping your toe in the water for this kind of a more network way of working, if we can call it that. How are you finding it? Well, I don't, I think unfortunately we're not really working in this way. It's certainly not at scale. I work this way. Um, in, a, in other words, like I don't have anyone breathing down my neck telling me where to be or when to be there. And so my network of space is everything but flexible office space because in most instances, I'm not justifying being able to make that purchase myself. If my employer was offering that to me, I'd probably choose it more often. But then, of course, the, the other aspect of it is that that sector, the sort of space as a service sector, hasn't really evolved quickly enough for me to feel even like my needs are being met. And, and especially for me being in like not even a secondary, but a tertiary market. Like I have a few co-working spaces that I could go to in Charlottetown, but it's like, you know, they're way in the four times. They haven't, they haven't evolved to be even what re is representative of the best in 2023. And so I think that that's part of it as well. Um, I'm more compelled probably to go work from a park or from a walking trail or from a cafe than I am from uh, what should, you know, more probably resemble a working club. I would love it if a working club existed in my community. I think that the socioeconomic benefits of that are, are quite far reaching. I mean, I'm actually not commuting or anything like that. And so ESG is, is, is kind of a component of that for the employer. Um, but I think it actually creates this opportunity to break down socioeconomic divides within communities and allow for people that don't work at the same organization to spend more time together. And so it, it kind of expands upon that idea of like going to the public library and um, you know, interacting with your community or building relationships within your neighborhood, it, it creates that benefit while still providing people a change of scenery to shake things up from working at home, um, you know, and, and strengthen those sort of like like those strong loose ties within a community. And to me, like I can't wrap my head around why organizations wouldn't consider that a corporate win. Like that is a corporate from, from many, many, many respects. But I think that it's not, it's just not really happening because there's still this mentality, at, at least with most of the largest organizations in the world, which, which make up, you know, a lot of the jobs, um, that, you know, work is a place, culture is a place. And, and for them, it tends to be quite singular. It's, it's like those, like work happens at our office and our culture exists because we have an office. Um, and I think that that's the problem that's sort of sick.
where. Do you think that any particular, like, I guess, geographies or even potentially companies are getting it right in your opinion? I mean, the, you know, the funny thing is, if you, in, in North America, we're seeing the, the worst return to office. If we want to call it worst. Um, <laughs> what, what do you mean by that? We have the lowest numbers in terms of return. So returning. people don't want to get back into an office. No. And I mean, I think that that's a multifaceted answer. I mean, it's probably in part we have a, you know, like our cities are, are often thriving cities in North America. It's, it's, it's not convenient to get to most employers' office locations because we centralized that whole function into financial districts and those financial districts are very far away from where people live. So that's, that's obviously one element of why we have these, these bad numbers. And again, bad is with quotations because it depends who you're talking to. I think it's a good thing, but um, landlords and people who monetize their life off of people going to the office. And ironically, I am one of those people, but I think that that's one element of it. And then the other is just actually that we are a bit more of a freer uh, society, theoretically. We certainly, you know, certainly in America, people don't like to be told what to do. Um, and I think that now that they've been given the choice not to, um, they're, they're, they're exercising that power and autonomy. I think that the, the personas of, of these, these sort of future-facing knowledge workers, the sort of corporate freelancer, as it were, I think that they, they're more evolved in North America than they are in other places in the world because we are more of a knowledge economy over here. We're spending, we're, you know, more, more of our economy is made up of people that are using their brain to do work than other places in the world. And so you're going to see more innovation and more evolution um, in, 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 these, in these areas too. So that's why it's happening this way differently than other places. This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast, for live sessions of advice, mentoring, or sometimes to collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. I'd love to tap into any advice or insights that you have for kind of a, I guess, a couple of different groups of people I'll, I'll walk us through in the wider kind of a spaces service ecosystem. So for people who are kind of creating new working spaces for their teams, they've got this on the agenda. So they have knowledge workers, they want to get into a, a space of some kind. What advice would you give to people who are in charge of developing the culture and letting their culture live with their teams? to create kind of a working spaces, what should they be aware of? I think you need to understand the personas that are in your organization. I mean, roughly 20% of knowledge workers actually need an office. Um, and so of course, in any organization of any meaningful size, you're gonna find you probably have roughly 20% of those people that, that need it. Like it, they don't need it like from the standpoint of, of collaborating and connecting, like they don't have suitable working conditions in their own so they require it. So that's that's a given. Um, and then there are some people who want it. You know, uh, like younger folks often actually want to go to the office. Um, I think that they want the same early professional life experience that everyone had that preceded them. With the only difference being that they don't really want to have to subscribe to this idea of like clocking in and clocking out. I think what they're going to say is they want a lot more trust and in, in having that trust, a lot more flexibility. So like it should be okay to show up at 10 o'clock and leave at one o'clock if that's what the day either necessitates or 
or the or the uh, employee desires. You know, like we should be giving a lot of choice to everybody. But I think it's then important to to determine like what is the next group of people that are are going to want to be there often, and it's probably going to be young people, and it's probably going to be for different reasons than the employer might um, you know think. Like most young people are out there trying to socialize. They're trying to actually meet a mate or a partner of some variety. And, you know, of course, they want to learn through osmosis and different things from uh, from those that are more experienced than them. But I think a lot of their uh, their choices in, in, in the decision to, to be at the office all the time are, are social in nature and also probably due to the fact that, again, they're they're living in smaller, you know, uh, residential environments, too. So who needs it? Who wants it? You should be building that, that designing out that space and this, the overall workplace strategy around those people kind of front and center. And then from there, it's, it's like, okay, well, how do we need to gather? Like, what are the, what are the reasons that we gather as a company, both at a larger scale and at a more micro or smaller scale? And then like, what kind of spaces do we need for that? And more importantly, like, how do we activate those spaces? Um, when, when they're needed. So um, that's how I'd go about it. I mean, you can skin that cat a million different ways. One that I love, um, Grammarly is a company that I think is doing it really well. Um, they have offices. They obviously supply space to their entire team that needs and wants it. Um, it's fully choice-led in terms of going to the office on a daily basis. But what they require of their employees is that once every quarter, they meet up for a week. Uh, and what I love about that is that it creates the opportunity for that to be intentional instead of just relying on, you know, warm bodies being side by side and hoping that great outcomes happen. Um, and then it also gives people the opportunity to plan around those activities, right? And that's huge because a lot of people in the pandemic have actually moved to a different place. Some of them are actually being told now to to come back, even though they were hired as remote workers, which is really quite savage. Um, but it gives people the opportunity to plan around those activities, which just shows a level of respect for your employee base. Um, so I like that approach because they're creating intentional reasons to gather and they're giving the choice to their employees to have a space to be productive and connect on their own terms. Otherwise, uh, But again, you can, you can go at it a lot of different ways. What's your view on virtual worlds? I'm a believer in them. Um, there's yet to be what, what we would call killer use cases that have been widely accepted. Um, but I think that they're like the scalability of being able to bring your teams together um, and the speed with which that you can, you can do it and the cost reduction that exists as well. Um, plus meeting ESG objectives by limiting travel and commute time and things like that. Like, I think there's some really obvious benefits to encouraging, you know, maybe, you know, even just beta testing, uh, collaborating and connecting more in virtual worlds and environments. And, and like that, that just seems like there's, there's going to be use cases that, that do pop up. And then the other comes more in the form of like diversity, equity, inclusion, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of people that don't feel comfortable to even have their face on a screen and get a meaningful point across that it might make them feel uncomfortable in some way. And so 
if you can encourage um, at least some gatherings to happen in virtual environments like that, there's an opportunity to give um, you know people who typically would be quiet an opportunity to be a little bit louder. There's an opportunity for employees to get to know each other without necessarily um, having that you know biases that come into play, whether that be gender, whether that be racial, whatever the case may be. In, in a way, I get excited by the idea of larger companies allowing their employees to actually go through an onboarding process or something like that in a virtual environment first, and then give those same employees the opportunity to meet in person. And I, I do wonder, like, what what might benefit from doing it that way? And, and how might they actually perceive each other differently because they've gotten the chance to know each other's consciousness before they were able to take a look at, you know, their bodies, which is when every, when all the judgments and, and all of that come into play. It's actually quite an exciting time for perhaps, well, I guess anybody in the working world, particularly knowledge workers and maybe people who are kind of a coming through and I guess joining the ranks of knowledge workers now, because if you think about like the digital online interactions, interactions one-on-one, video calls in a virtual world and physical spaces and physically meeting up, having the opportunity to do all three, I think it's going to be really interesting for how people develop their work in, in their kind of, I guess their working life, their work, working personality. Because I think it feels like the traditional office space can suit extroverts more or the voices that you hear. And I think I was, I'm just riffing off some of the things that you're mentioning, Dave, around fairness and people being able to feel heard in a way that makes them feel comfortable. So it actually feels like quite an exciting time for, you know, the, the next generation of workforce versus, I guess, people that have gone through traditional kind of a go to work, be there in person environments to, to, to be heard and shape themselves. hundred percent. And I mean, I think that it's important for us all to remember that the change is always going to happen from the ground up as it always does. Groundswell comes from the bottom. Like, you know, we're, we're looking at the headlines of, uh, and, and the headlines are telling us that remote work is now dead. It, it, it's been proven to not work. And, you know, People like Elon Musk are out there calling it immoral and blah, blah, blah. And that, that gets a lot of the attention. But within the technology sector, the vast, vast, vast majority of companies within that sector are comp- are offering choice to their employees around where they work, right? It's only the largest, insti- these are institutions like Google, Meta, you know, Salesforce, uh, et cetera, et cetera. These companies, and, and not only that, the backers of these companies have huge, huge, huge vested interests in commercial real estate. So I think it's just really important to note that the tides have turned. There are young companies that started themselves either just before the pandemic or in the pandemic that will never look at how they define or build culture or where and how they do work the same ever again. And it's easy, you know, it can be easy to get caught up in, in thinking, in losing hope, actually, for all this change, this optimistic possibility that you just described. And of course, there's dark sides and all that, but there's dark sides to every technological revolution we've ever gone through in human history. And we're still, we still deal with the challenges as, as we uncover more what they are, but we don't end up going backwards for, for two reasons. One, we kind of can't, and two, we probably don't want to anyway. So we're, we're just continuing to try to figure out how to live with this technological evolution 
I for one see it very, very positively. Um, I think the key thing though, is that you can't leave it in any one domain, uh, for that, for that domain to be responsible for it. Like I wouldn't want to have meta the company be the only player who is responsible for growing and evolving the metaverse. That would not be good. Um, it feels like the government needs to get involved in that. And it feels like society in general has to be invested in navigating outcomes like that, that could have, you know, create material change to the way that we interact. But like one use case that, that came up for me that I was just listening to lately is imagine if a community of people had the opportunity to go into a virtual world and look at a digital twin of how they were trying to plan out the parks and other community public spaces within that domain and give, say, children the opportunity to co-create what that park actually looks like and build that out as a group in a digital world and then manifest it in the physical world. Like, these are really awesome opportunities when you when you think of those kinds of things. And I'd rather focus on that stuff than, you know, the fact that in theory we could all you know, sit as avatars in their basements and never leave. I mean, I just don't buy that human beings would choose to do that to themselves. Like we are, we are struggling with our addictions to social media. We're struggling to figure all of this stuff out, but you know, we have autonomy in our personal lives to decide how we interact with them, something like social media. And I mean, we're struggling with it, but you know, just last night, my wife and I are talking about it with each other. We're trying to talk about how we can, you know, have that be part of our life in a way that's better and doesn't necessarily say negatively impact our child or, or our interpersonal relationships. And so like people are always going to try to figure out how to be healthy, how to be well, how to live the best that they can and how to have technology support them rather than consume them. And so I, I'm just a believer and in an optimistic sense that, that we will find our various paths forward, but we shouldn't leave it in the hands of any one group. And you strike me, Dave, as someone that really kind of uh, thinks around things. So it's not necessarily the quickest way from to get to A to B in a straight line. You really think about lots of possibilities before you kind of uh, shape your opinions. And I'm sure they change too as your knowledge grows. Let me ask you now, I wanted to kind of do a couple of quick fire questions. I'm just quite nosy, basically. So I'm really curious where you go to feed your brain creatively. You have quite a contrarian perspective sometimes on some things. So where do you go to feed your creative brain? For work, I mean, I think it's so important to to get the other side. So, like, you know, I'm I'm in the commercial real estate industry. So, remote work advocates, um, I find to be really great to follow. Um, not the like, you know, religious ones. <laughs> like, and I mean, like, you know, that are like religiously obsessed about it. Um, but the ones that are really painting, you know, a picture of all the the nuances to how and why remote work really benefits society. So um, I definitely turn to those kinds of folks. Um, I, I love to listen to podcasts from like really, really deep thinkers. So a guy, there's a guy named Sam Harris, who I listen a lot to, who covers like just wildly abstract topics. Um, you know, really anything from actually gender issues through to like the concept of time, um, you know, like I just like to go really far outside uh, the bounds of, of things. And then the, the other thing I love to do is facilitate conversations myself. So I you know, I run a, uh, a roundtable discussion series in a virtual world 
called Inspire People, Inspire Places, and it covers uh, topics around well-being, uh, the importance of community, regenerative technology, future of education, and future of work. And I find that that is absolutely the best way to learn, to have conversations like you and I are having right now with people that have, you know, interesting and diverse views. So that those are the ways I, I do things. What do you think right now is overhyped? And is there anything that you think is interesting that's not picked up by the mainstream or it's just kind of acquired from down? Well, I guess in the current moment, the return to office is overhyped. I mean, you're you're hearing corporate leaders say that like September 2023 is the day that remote work will be officially dead. And uh, that sounds really stupid. It doesn't make any sense. And um, so, so I guess that's probably the primary one. Um I think the death of the metaverse is also overhyped. Um, you know, I think that people, and I'm just getting to understand this stuff myself. So like, you know, a metaverse is really a virtual, uh, represent it's, it's, it's our imagined reality. It's the, it's the place that we can go to manifest our values in a place that's interoperable where we can basically carry ourselves from one virtual environment to another. And represent ourselves as we want to uh, throughout that entire virtual landscape. That's a concept of a metaverse. You know, one virtual world like the one that we use, Verbella's Open Campus, well, that's a virtual world. That's what it is. But it's not in and of itself the metaverse. It's just a facet of a multifaceted thing. Correct. Correct. Look at the way the internet has evolved or you look at the way that artificial intelligence has evolved you know like artificial intelligence started in the 60s and it's 2023 now and it's now gotten into the consumer's hands right so that's that's a long time like what is that that's that's like 60 years or whatever right that it's taken for ai to get into the hands of a consumer and then you look at the evolution of the internet like to me the metaverse is almost just the evolution of the internet like it's, it's just the next frontier of the internet. I guess what I would say is that like, I could never even claim to try to forecast what that future state would look like from a metaverse perspective. It can't be dead because to me, it just feels like an evolution of something that already exists. Amazing. And tell me now, what is it about your industry that keeps you excited and motivated? I, I just like the idea of being able to support um, people having more options between this binary home versus office thing. I don't think that like, no, no one is going to choose any one environment and say, well, okay, I've, I've reached the Mecca. I've reached utopia. Like here I am. I've arrived. That's just not how it works. And people reserve the right to change their minds. You know what I mean? Like right now I benefit from working mostly from home because I raise a young child and for me to be actively involved in her life and to be an equitable partner. Um, that's going to be the best way for me to, to work. Am I going to feel that way in five years? I don't fucking know, but I reserve the right to change my mind. And I think that that's what the, the, is the greatest opportunity of, of, of you know, the, the commercial real estate industry okay. becoming a space as a service industry is it helps people reserve the right to change their mind. That's a great way to put it. And last thing, on a scale of one to 10, how weird are you, Dave? Pretty weird. I mean... Feels like I mean I don't know the weirdest person that I could conceive of is Jeffrey Dahmer. So you've <laughs> <laughs> went there. If he's the weirdest, I mean I'm actually not that weird. I'm probably like three. Cool. If we think of the weirdest people on earth, yeah. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap it up. 
Yeah, Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> he did. So concludes another episode of Label Sessions Presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast no matter your platform of choice. And of course, start your journey today with us at labelsessions.com.